Amen. I love the uh, I love the heart behind that song, the new song that we we sang this morning, "Spirit Lead Me," because I think in the day we live in, we have a lot of things that are uh, vying for that position of leadership in our lives. Um, there's a lot of voices that are trying to speak into us: social media, uh, 24-hour news, politicians, uh, doctors. <laughs> Uh, there's all these voices, there's all these, it gets to be where it's just noise because there's so much of it going on. And so I would challenge you churches, as that song has challenged me, to just try to focus on hearing from the Spirit of God. We're, we're filled with the Spirit when we come to Christ, and so we've got that kind of onboard GPS system built into us. So I would challenge you, like I said, for, for the, the challenge that it's brought to me, to let the Spirit lead and not anything else. Amen? If you uh, have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, I wish you would turn with us into chapter 2 of Philippians. We're going to be finishing up chapter 2 today. And I want to talk to you about strong friends in the faith. Again, this, this theme that we've been working through, uh, Paul is talking to the church at Philippi, and he's talking to us today about how to be the church. Not just come to church, but to be the church. He's talking about power, he's talking about unity, he's talking about humility, he gives us the example that we're supposed to follow, which is Jesus Christ. That's our, our benchmark. That's our standard. And we're supposed to get to his level, make our own attitude that of Christ. We have the mind of Christ, Paul would tell us later. So we understand that Jesus is supposed to be our pattern. And now he's going to give us two people who have done that. And so this is kind of taking it from the, uh, from the deity into the humanity for us to look at what it looks like to have the mind of Christ. Uh, those of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s uh, know, uh, let's do a little test. Let's do it a little different this morning, all right? This is group participation. I know Baptists hate that, but it's okay. All right, I'm going to say the first part. And if you know the line of this song, I want, you to, I want you to finish it out loud, okay? Friends are friends forever. There you go. <laughs> if the Lord's the Lord of them. This is a Michael W. Smith song. He was cruel enough to release this song not once, but twice in 1983 and 1992. What a sadist. <laughs> I've got to be honest with you. That song is torturous. Uh, I sang that song at my sister-in-law's high school graduation, and I almost broke down singing it then. And I'm up, there, I'm up there singing it, and my voice is quivering. I'm going, what are you doing? You're a grown man. These are children that are graduating. I was, I was several years older than her. I'm like, you can't be breaking down at Friends or Friends Forever at some high school graduation. But it just gets to me. And the reason it gets to me is because I think all of us have that soft spot for friends. And so, obviously, Paul does too. And so that's what he's going to be talking about. He closes the second chapter of Philippians by recognizing two of his good friends in the faith and uh, who played an important role in his ministry. And he gives them credit for what they have done. I had an old pastor who used to say, don't wait till I'm dead to bring me flowers. And that's, that stuck with me. I try to do that. I try to be somebody who, who is uh, quick to recognize and appreciate people who do a good job. Timothy and Epaphroditus are the kind of friends that we need to be and the friends that we need. It's the kind of friends that we need in our lives. They put Christ first and they see the mission of the church as more vital than their comfort. With Paul's focus in the first two chapters on unity and humility, these two are excellent examples of what it looks like in shoe leather. Y'all ever heard that phrase? Uh, my former pastor, Stacy Stafford, still one of my best friends, he used to always say that. He said, now let me tell you what that looks like in shoe leather. And what he means is, let's put it on the ground. 
Let's take it out of the heavens. Let's take it out of the mind. And let's put it out of the book. Let's put it on the ground. Let's see what it looks like in shoe leather. And so that's what these two guys are doing. They're showing us what it looks like to follow Jesus in, in real life. So let's look at these two godly examples and see how we measure up to their approach. If you would stand with me this morning. And we're going to read a pretty uh, substantial chunk, but it's going to be 19 through the end of the chapter. Uh, but let's honor the, the public reading of the Word of God. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 19. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I also may be encouraged when I hear news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am convinced in the Lord that I myself will also come quickly. Look at, look at 19 and 23. He's hoping in the Lord. He's convinced in the Lord. Verse 25. But I consider it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. Since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him and not only on him but also on me so that I would not have one grief on top of another. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may rejoice when you see him again and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord. There it is again three times in this passage in the Lord. With all joy and hold men like him in honor because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. God, I beg you to speak to us today through these two men, through your flawed servant, through your word, and through your spirit. For Christ's sake, amen. You may be seated. So we're going to talk about two things about these men. We're going to talk about the, their bio and their blessings. Okay, their bio and their blessings. So I'm going to give you some history, some background to understand who these two men are. So we'll start with Timothy. Timothy was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. This is similar to a marriage now of a non-believer and a believer, uh, which is what the Bible refers to as unequally yoked in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Uh, the mother would have raised him Jewish, but the father would not have supported that raising. When I read about Timothy, I feel like I'm talking about me even though uh, my mom and dad weren't Jewish and Greek, <laughs> but they were lost and, and saved. And so my mom would take me to church and my dad would make me go to church. And as a kid, especially as a boy, that looked stupid to me that I had to go to church with my mom, but my dad stayed home and watched sports and, and ate cereal and hung out in his pajamas. Um, so, so this would be the same type of a concept in this society. Obviously, his father didn't allow him to be circumcised because we see in Acts 16... Uh, that the Jewish custom had not been performed on Timothy, and Paul actually had him uh, undergo that procedure so he could better minister to the Jewish people. Uh, this is that all things to all people that Paul talks about. He tells uh, Timothy, he says, hey, if you're going to be effective to this Jewish, primarily Jewish audience, you're going to have to be circumcised, or they're going to see you as an outsider. They're not going to listen to you as much. So Eunice and Lois, we meet them in Scripture. That's Timothy's mother and grandmother. They raised him to know the Lord because they were careful to teach him the Old Testament at, a early, at an early age. And why was it important that they only taught him the Old Testament? Because they didn't have the New Testament. Uh, that kind of goes without saying, but just for clarity's sake. Uh, they had the Old Testament. They had the Torah, the Scriptures, and that's what they trained him on. That's what they raised him on. So they raised him to look for the Messiah, and he found the Messiah when he met Paul. 
Paul put the pieces together of all this stuff that he had been taught as a kid in the Old Testament. Paul said, look, this Jesus that I'm preaching and all this Old Testament knowledge you have, and there you go. And that's how Paul brought Timothy to faith. He probably heard and responded to the gospel along with his mother and grandmother when Paul came through the area of Derby and Lystra um, on his first missionary journey around when, when Timothy was around 16. And this was in actually in Acts chapter 16 that we see this. Now, we don't know that for sure, but that's our best estimate that when Paul came through during that first missionary journey, he encountered Eunice and Lois and Timothy, and they all came to Christ. Uh, probably Timothy was about 21 when he joined Paul. Now, those of you that are younger, we don't have a lot of younger ones in here this morning, but uh, for you, that ought to be an encouragement that, that Timothy was only 21 when he left everything he knew, and he joined this kind of traveling caravan of gospel missionaries. And so he joined up with Paul when he was about 21 years old, and he started uh, going around spreading the gospel and, and creating churches, planting churches. Paul was very close to Timothy, and even in 1 Timothy uh, 1-2, he called him um, my true son in the faith. That's a powerful phrase to me uh, when I hear that, that. That really touches my heart as somebody who ministers, uh, primarily has always ministered to youth and college age. Uh, that, that's, I think about when I hear my true son in the faith, I think about students that I have. Uh, I've got a kid in Dothan that's a worship leader. I've got a kid in Pensacola who's a youth pastor. I've got a kid in uh, Fort Worth uh, it's in his, uh, finishing up his doctorate. He's going to be a, a pastor. He's in seminary. Uh, several. I've got a, a kid who is in Jacksonville. He's a police officer. Uh, these are husbands and fathers. And uh, you know, I, I think about them as my true sons in the faith. And it's really important to think about that relationship that Paul had with Timothy when you're looking at this situation going on and how they how they interact, uh, interrelate to each other all through the New Testament. So he served as Paul's representative in several churches, 1 Corinthians 4, 17, Philippians 2, 19. And then he was later a pastor at Ephesus. We find that out in 1 Timothy 1. Timothy is also mentioned as being with Paul when Paul wrote several of the New Testament letters, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. All of these times that you see Paul writing these letters, Timothy is there with him, and sometimes he was even the courier. So that's his bio, that's his biography, that's, that's who Timothy is and how he came to be where he is in this story. And now let's talk about his blessings. Uh, I have five things, don't panic, I've got other stuff to talk about, but I've got five things about the blessings of Timothy that I want us to focus on this morning. Number one is his hope. In verse 19 he says, Now I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, so I also may be encouraged when I hear news about you. So he hopes to send Timothy to this church at Philippi. Paul's hope was to send him there, but not only to send him there, but have him return to Paul and share news of the church. They didn't have a face bag and the tweeter that they could get on and they could check on everybody. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have text messages. They had, they had little communication other than couriers or word of mouth. People would come through and say, oh, yeah, that church at Philippi, yeah, I was there on my last trip as I came through there. And so Paul would get sparse news. And so he wanted to send Timothy to the church to take them information and instruction, and he wanted Timothy to bring back news about his, his church that he had planted there. So during this time, that would be the one of the only ways he could get these reports. And think about this. He's planted this church. He's invested his life in these people. He's given them the gospel. He's set them on a mission, and then he's completely separated from them. I know for us as parents, parents, grandparents maybe too, have y'all ever just thought about the fact that when we were little, like when I was a kid, I just went somewhere. Like, I just went somewhere. 
Saturday morning, I would get up and I would eat the, like a mixing bowl full of cereal, like half a box. <laughs> and then I would watch cartoons for a little while and then I would go outside. And my mom would go about her day. My dad would go about his day. And I would be outside. I'd go down to the lake fishing. I'd go out in the woods playing war or shoot my BB gun. We'd go next door and play football or, or uh, we'd play, we would play baseball with tennis balls. And if you got hit with the ball, you were out. And I was the youngest kid on the block at the time. And so I, sometimes when I got hit with the ball, I was really out because these were some five and six years older than me kids. But I would just go and play and my mom wouldn't know. And I would you know, just come home, the, like the street lights would come on and I knew I needed to go to the house. This is kind of how it was here. There wasn't this constant, you know, we got Life 360. Anybody got Life 360? You can pull it up and see where everybody in your family is. My daughter's a stalker, y'all. We, we need to get help. Like, I'll pull in the driveway, and the garage door is already open, and she's standing at the door waving at me because she's been watching me all night. She gets a little notification and says, Kevin Cobb has arrived at Wakefield Drive East, and she'll get out, and she'll open the garage door and be standing there waving at me when I pull in. I'm like, it's a little creepy. See, Paul didn't have that. Paul was completely separated from these people and this big investment that he had. I, I kind of relate to this like the first year we lived here. You know, we went from 2,500 square feet on four and a half acres to about 900 square feet up on the church property up here for a year. And somebody asked me, they said, what's it like having a house in Dothan and having to live here in Mobile? I said, take a quarter of a million dollars and put it in a suitcase, sit it in the middle of a field and drive off. That's what it's like. That's what Paul experienced with this separation. And so this hope he has is that he will get to hear from them and get to communicate with them through Timothy. The second thing he has is harmony. Uh, in verses 20 and 21, he says, I have no one else like-minded who would genuinely care about your interest because all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. So he's wanting to send him because that's the closest Paul can get to going himself. Paul wants to go, but, but he doesn't... He doesn't see that as being a possibility. So his next best option because of this harmonious relationship between him and Timothy is he's going to send Timothy. Paul needed to send someone who loved them like he loved them. But that was challenging. Apparently there were many wolves in sheep's clothing that only wanted to grow their own network or increase their own net worth rather than wanting to truly serve the Lord in the local church. Can, can somebody just say that's a 2020 concept right there? I'm telling you, when you read the New Testament, you read Paul's letters, you read about what God was doing in these churches, you get a real sense of the depravity of humanity, that it's still the, it was the same depravity. They have different equipment in 2020, but their depravity was identical back in the New Testament church. In the first century, people were still people. And so Paul sees that, and so he knows he trusts Timothy. He knows the heart of this man. He knows the, the, the compassion that he has for the gospel. Paul had a genuine love for these churches that he planted because he saw them as his children in the faith, but also because he knew that this was the mission that Jesus had sent him on. Think about the, the, the power of that. Knowing that this is the very life that I am supposed to live is to be planting churches and growing churches and sharing the gospel, that's Paul's passion. That's Paul's heartbeat. And yet he's uh, restricted from being able to do that because of time and distance and also captivity. And so he has to have people like this that he can have a harmonious relationship with so that he can send them and know that it's the next best thing to be in there. So there's the, the hope and the harmony and then the heart. Paul refers to his relationship with Timothy as that of a father and a son in verse 22. 
What a great example of what proper disciple-making relationships are supposed to look like. What a great picture of what real discipleship is supposed to look like. When you pour your life into someone to help them love and serve Jesus more effectively, the only thing that can come from that is a familial relationship. I can definitely relate to that. Just here at Westmobile, it's, it's... all right, y'all got, to, y'all got to go with me for just a minute, okay? I was really hesitant to hire the two people that I've hired since I've been here. Not because of them, but because of what it would look like, because of what the perception would be. Because I thought that people would say, yeah, he's just this old buddy system, you know, he's not giving anybody else a chance, he's just hiring his boys. Well, yeah. <laughs> the more I thought about it, the more I thought, this is what discipleship is supposed to be. This is what the local church should be everywhere. You should be training up future leaders in your church. We trained up Allie Holderfield. She served in the preschool ministry. She served in in our college ministry. And and now she's going to another place. Her and her husband serve at the bridge over in, in Loosedale. That's what it's supposed to look like. We shouldn't have to go out of state. We shouldn't have to go out of town even. We shouldn't have to go outside the walls of our church to fill pastoral ministry positions because God should be helping us to equip those who we already have. He's put people here for us to develop into leaders of the future. And what the problem is, is we don't put that effort and time into that development. So then when we have a position, we look and we go, you ready? And they go, no, I ain't ready. You ain't done anything with me. So glory to God that this church has poured into grace and hope for all these years of his life, preparing him for this day. He went to University of Mobile. He got his degree in worship leadership. He knew God had called him to this years ago. He served in our youth ministry leading worship. God was preparing him and building him and growing him for just this instance. And then Austin McNeil comes six years ago. Actually, this month, he came. His first time he came, I think, was Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames six years ago. And the first night that I met him and Hillary, they came back there to the fellowship hall and helped us counsel new believers that had come to faith in Christ during Heaven's Gates. And all these years, he he got a degree to teach school. He became a school teacher. And through that, God was developing and preparing him to call him to be a student pastor just at the time that we had a position to fill. Think about the the sovereignty of an almighty God who could put all those things in motion 20 years ago, 6 years ago, and have everybody pouring into them and developing them to the point that they were ready to step into these roles. This is what discipleship is supposed to look like This is why we're supposed to have that kind of heart that Paul has for Timothy. Also, we see the hesitation. I want to be clear about this. Paul is waiting to see how things go for him before he sends Timothy. Now, Paul wasn't waiting to see if God was going to come through. He was waiting to see if he would be able to go himself. And, And this is encouraging to me also because sometimes I feel like I don't have enough of that, like, clairvoyant faith. You ever thought about, you, know, you see these people and like God's speaking to them and visions and dreams and, you know, the angelic visitations. You're like, man, I need that because I'm stupid. <laughs> I'm slow. I'm thick-skulled and I, sometimes I struggle and God's like trying to kick me in the, in the backside, trying to get me to do what he wants me to do. And I'm just slow. Uh, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. He's like, go. I'm telling you to go. And I'm like, yeah, but do you really want me to go? So then you see this and you think, okay, it's not just me. Here's, if you're wondering why Paul thought this way, look at Acts 16. Verses 6 and 7. 
This will give you a perfect picture of why Paul is saying, hey, I want to send him, but I'm waiting to see how things go with me. Let me read that to you. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia and were prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the message in Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So Paul has this passion to go to Asia, and God says, no. And Paul says, I want to go to, to, to Bith- Bithynia, and he says, no. And so Paul is like, all right, I don't know what exactly to do. So I'm going gonna, gonna to I'm gonna keep doing this until I know that God has called me to do something else. Can I just give you, just everybody here, you don't have to be in ministry. You don't have to be Paul the apostle to have that mentality. If you're trying to figure out what you're supposed to be doing, do the last thing you know God has called you to do until you are convinced that he's called you to do something else. If you're, if you're not making disciples, you're not in the will of God, stop asking him what else you want him to do until you start making disciples. You're not doing the first thing he told you to do. Well, I just don't know if the Lord wants me to sell my house or not. Are you making disciples? Because that's a more important step than whether or not to move. You better, you better start making disciples and fulfilling the Great Commission and then ask God to direct your steps in the other directions and the other things. Note the change of tone in Paul's plans by the end of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 16, 7, he says this. Now remember, in the Acts trip in Acts 16, his first journey, he's like, I want to go here and he wouldn't let me. I want to go here and he wouldn't let me. Listen to, his, listen to his heartbeat, his mindset in 1 Corinthians 16, 7. I don't want to see you now just in passing, for I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows. <laughs> Paul has learned. <laughs> Paul has been instructed, and he's cleared up on what he needs to do. Proverbs, the, the writer of the Proverbs says it this way. Proverbs 19, 21. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. And then Proverbs 16, 9. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. There's a, a southern rock song by a group called Van Zant called Help Somebody. And here's the line from it. If you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. So the fifth thing out of here I want you to see about Paul's um, uh, attitudes and his attributes is the help. Paul is convinced that the Lord will help him visit them soon himself in verse 24. He says, I'm convinced in the Lord that I myself will also come quickly. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 121 verses 1 and 2. I raise my eyes towards the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Paul is relating himself in that same way with the psalmist to say, I know that if I'm going to get there, it's going to be because the Lord helps me get there, because the Lord has got to get me there if I'm going to get there. We are always in equal amount of need from the Lord, but we're only aware of that need when times are tough. The person in the hospital is just as much in need of the Lord as the person in their home. I've, I've done several hospital visits where people say, just pray for me, Brother Kevin. I, need, I really need a touch from the Lord. And I try to remind them, hey, so do I. <laughs> just because you're in the bed and I'm just coming to visit doesn't mean that, that you need him any more than I do. We, but we are all equally in desperate need of God. So that's Timothy. That's his bio. That's his blessings. And now let's look at Epaphroditus. His bio, Epaphroditus actually means belonging to Aphrodite. Belonging to Aphrodite. The name of the pagan goddess was actually part of his name. Now I want you to catch this. I love this. So when Epaphroditus received the gospel, 
He was now belonging to Jesus, and the idol had no more claim on him regardless of his name. I love, I think about that old hymn, uh, there's a new name written down in glory. That's, that's Epaphroditus. He was named belonging to Aphrodite, but God had a different plan for his life. His new birth defined him, not his birth name. Due to the power of the gospel and a man, a man named after a pagan god was enlisted to serve the living God. Only God can do that. Only God can take somebody out of a pagan. He was in such a deep pagan society that his name actually meant that he belonged to some fake deity. And yet Jesus reached down and touched him and snatched him from death to life and gave him a new name. He thought of others before himself just as Jesus had modeled for us and just as Paul asked the Philippians to do in, in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. He says, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. Based on the severity of his illness and the limited health care available at the time, the language used in verse 27 where it said God had mercy on him, is, it's reasonable to infer that he was miraculously healed. Just looking at the situation itself and the wording used, he was probably miraculously healed from whatever was going on with him. His service to Christ was more important than his own health as we see that he was literally risking his life to make up what was lacking in the church's ministry to Paul. He's the one who actually delivered the original manuscript to the church at Philippi. So that's his bio. Let's talk about his blessings. All right, the first thing, we got three attributes, and then we're going to talk about three attitudes, okay? In verse 25, he's referred to as a brother, a co-worker, and a fellow soldier. All right, the brother, that's a familial relationship. This is the kind of relationship that all believers here have with one another. If you are... In Christ, if you've surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus, you and I are brothers and sisters. We are family because we have that relationship. Then he was also a co-worker, which is a working relationship. This is the kind of relationship that all believers who are serving Jesus together in a local church have. All right? Some people in the church are not my co-workers. Now, I just want to be clear. I'm not trying to be offensive, but I'm just going to be honest. There are people in the church that are lost. Statistically speaking, more than likely, there are people who are church members who don't know Jesus. Then there's also a category of those who know Jesus, but they're not serving. They're not living for him. That's why I say that it's statistically likely, because I don't understand how you know Jesus and you don't serve Jesus. How do you truly know Jesus and you don't serve Jesus? I know people who have met Elvis. You know how I know that? Because I have a two-minute conversation with them. If they've met Elvis, they can't wait. You can say rhinestone. Oh, speaking of rhinestone, you know I met Elvis. You can say music. You can say blues. You can say Memphis. You can talk about barbecue. You can say peanut butter and banana sandwiches. And they're going to tell you that they met Elvis because it's such a monumental time in their life. People that met Neil Armstrong, people that met former presidents, they're, they're quick to tell Look, I've, I've had little brushes with greatness. I got my hair cut right after uh, Jeff Sessions got his hair cut a few months ago. That's about as close as I got. But you, you have these moments, and, and I don't understand how you meet Jesus, and you walk away from that going, yeah, yeah, I met Jesus. I don't understand it. I'm not saying it can't happen. Don't I? My, my job is not to be the judge of somebody's eternity, but I am a fruit inspector. But just statistically speaking, there are some in the church who don't know Jesus. 
There are some in the church who do know Jesus, but for some unforeseen, unrealistic reason, they don't serve him. So they're my family, they're my brother, they're my sister, but they're not my co-worker. Are we clear? And then the third thing he calls him is a fellow soldier. This is a service relationship. This is the kind of relationship all believers who are living sold-out lives for Jesus have. So again, everybody that's come to Christ is my brother or my sister. Some of them are my co-workers and some of them are my fellow soldiers. In other words, some of them are on the front lines with me. Some of them, is, some of them are really taking this Great Commission thing seriously. And this is how he described Epaphroditus, all three. He's my brother, he's my co-worker, he's my fellow soldier. So those are his three attributes. What about his three attitudes? Look at verse 26. He says, since he has been longing for all of you. So there was a craving there. There was a craving. This longing means he was eagerly desiring to see them and to help them. That should be every one of us, amen? We should have the kind of attitude and attributes of Epaphroditus. Then look at the next part. It says, and he was distressed because you heard that he was sick. So he was concerned. He was, there was a craving, but he was also concerned because they heard he was sick, and this bothered him that they worried. What a non-2020 <laughs> mentality. What a non-social media mentality, right? He wasn't, po- he wasn't posting his pictures on Instagram so everybody could feel sorry for him. He was more upset that they were worried about him. He was more upset that the church was worried about him than that he was dying. You know why? Because he had a gospel-centered viewpoint of life. He had an eternal perspective. He's like, hey, if I die, good. I get to see Jesus. I'm more concerned that the church is worried about me. Y'all don't worry about me. I'm on, if I die, I'm going to see Jesus. Don't worry about me. Can I echo that this morning? I'd like to echo that to you at Westmobile. Don't worry about me. Worry about doing the mission of the gospel because if I die, if I go away, God willing, somebody else will fill this spot and your mission doesn't change. Your mission doesn't change because the person behind this pulpit changes. So worry about him. Worry about serving him. Don't worry about me. That's the attitude of Epaphroditus. He was more concerned that they were worried about him than that he was dying. And then the third thing, he was, there was a craving, there was concern. And then look at verse 30. He was compromised because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. This risking means that he was, his physical sickness didn't distract him from concern for them, nor did it cause him to quit the fight. I love, Epaphroditus is one of the least mentioned, but one of the coolest cats in the New Testament because he literally got to the point, he was so close to death that he had to be miraculously healed, and yet his focus, his mission, his heartbeat was to make disciples, was to grow churches. Paul, how can I help you? Let me, let me do something. Yeah, but, but Epaphroditus, you're dying. It don't matter. My life doesn't matter. The mission matters. The ministry matters. The kingdom matters, not my life. I want to be like Epaphroditus. I want to have Epaphroditus' mentality that my health is secondary or tertiary that the mission of the gospel is most critical. So he was craving, there was a concern, and he was compromised because he was so focused on his mission. In Paul's remarks about Timothy and Epaphroditus, we can see great value of having great friends. We can see the dividends from making disciples, and we can see the honor of a great reputation. Let me give you those again. 
We see the value of great friends. We see the dividends from making disciples. And we can see the honor of a great reputation. So here, you know, always come down to a question. Always, when we get through these things, I always come to a point of having to ask you something. And now, by the way, when I'm asking you something, I want y'all to understand me. It's not because I'm just trying to poke you. It's because this has pricked my heart. This is the question. These are the questions that I come up with as I'm, as I'm marinating in this scripture. I, I would challenge you to get into the Bible to the point that the Bible starts to get into you. And so here's the question that it came to me. When I'm studying this passage, I'm thinking about these two strong brothers here in the faith. What if our whole church dedicated themselves to the gospel mission like Timothy and Epaphroditus? What if our entire church, what if, now I'm not talking about the big C church, the, the universal church, all believers. I'm talking about just our little church here, just Westmobile Baptist Church. What if every church member at Westmobile Baptist Church dedicated themselves to the gospel mission like Timothy and Epaphroditus? What if it were not about status or title, but only about using our gifts for the glory of King Jesus and the advancement of his gospel? So what about you? I, I want you to take this seriously this morning. I want you to really ponder this. Are you sold out for Jesus, for the gospel, and for your church family? And by the way, it's got to be in that order. I've, I've known people who were sold out for their church. But sometimes I really wondered if they were sold out for Jesus. Because they were sold out for their church as long as their church was doing things the way they wanted it done. As long as they got to pick the color of the carpet. As long as they got to pick the color of the pews. As long as they got to decide what kind of flowers got planted and when. And how short the grass was cut. And how, what the temperature in the sanctuary was. And what kind of music we had. And how everybody dressed. There are some people who were sold out to the church, but it's not for the right reasons because they don't have the other two. You've got to be first sold out for Jesus. I mean sold out for Jesus so that Jesus is more important than your job, than your house, than your family. This is why Jesus would say, unless a man hates his mother and father and sister and brother, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Does it really mean he wants you to hate everybody? No. But what it is is he wants you to love him so supremely that every other relationship in your life looks like hate by comparison. So are you sold out for Jesus, sold out for the gospel, and sold out for your church family like Timothy and Epaphroditus? And then the last question before I close, what kind of friend are you being if you're not getting your friends the gospel? What kind of friend are you being if you're not getting your friends the gospel? And I would even challenge you to think of it this way. Think about Lois and Eunice. What kind of mother, grandmother are you being if you're not getting your kid, your grandkid, the gospel? What kind of father or grandfather are you being if you're not getting your kid or your grandkid the gospel? If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes as you stand. Y'all know I, I say this every time. Uh, I believe that the gospel deserves a response. And so we're not going to linger this morning, but I just want to give you an opportunity to respond. Maybe something I've said this morning has convicted you. Maybe, um, maybe something I've said this morning has, has given you pause to think uh, about your situation and how you're approaching the gospel and how you're thinking about eternity. If you're spending all your time worried about the 80 years, plus or minus, that you may get 
on this earth. You're not promised 80. But if you're spending all your time worried about this, this side of eternity, you're, you're, really, you're really putting your investment in the wrong place. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus, you can make that profession of faith today. We have counselors up here who help you talk, help talk you through that, help you work through that. If you need to come to faith in Christ, just come down here and talk to one of us. If you're, if you're a follower of Christ, but this message this morning has made you realize that you're not living to the level of Timothy and Epaphroditus, much less Paul, maybe today you just say, you know what, I need to rededicate my life. I need to, I need to reaffirm my commitment to the Savior. If you need to do that, you can come do that this morning. If you're here this morning, you say, I, I know Jesus, I'm serving Jesus, but right now I just don't have that Philippi. I don't have that church body. I don't have that church home where I can really invest my life. I would love to talk to you about what it looks like to join our body of believers here at Westmobile. If you need to do that, you can come now. Whatever God's doing this morning in this service, whatever the Spirit is saying to you this morning, I pray that you would just follow Him, would just trust Him and move. When He says move, you move. So we're just going to wait for just a moment. If you need to make a decision, if you need to make a public profession, or if you just need somebody to pray with you, you do that now as we wait. Everybody look at me for just a minute. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your attention. My prayer is, and I'll just be honest with you, it's kind of hard to preach this message when I'm looking around and I'm seeing some Timothys and Epaphrodituses. I'm seeing some people who, who I know in my six years of being here uh, that you have served the Lord faithfully, that you've uh, aided the ministry of the church here, that you've been a part of what the gospel is intended to do at Westmobile. So I'm just, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Uh, for those of you that have been active and been participating and serving with us, uh, God bless you for that. It, it's really encouraging to be able to preach a message about Timothy and Epaphroditus to people who are walking in their footsteps. So let me just thank you for that. I want to remind you, uh, you can give in the boxes on the way out or you can give online. Uh, thank you so much for your continued support and faithfulness. I know these are weird days and I know the numbers are spiking and as the numbers of the coronavirus spike, I know that our attendance numbers are going to dip as far as our in-service. That's fine. We're going to have we're going to stream our 10:30 service right on out, uh, Lord willing. Uh, we're just going to keep doing that, even if we have to go back to just an online only for a while. Uh, but whatever we need to do to make sure we keep you safe and still get the gospel out, that's what we're going to do. Uh, let me also just one more thing. We're going to get Austin to close us in prayer. Please be praying for our students. Uh, our youth group, a uh, smaller group than normal because of this virus and because of all the things going on. But uh, we're, we're going to go to uh, Camp Baldwin this afternoon, and we're going to have a few days over there just to get away and hear from the Lord. Uh, we've got a speaker coming from Andalusia. We've got a band from UM that's going to come lead worship. Just pray that we have an experience there that we can really say we, we met with the Lord in that camp. But also just pray for protection. Uh, again, because the numbers are the way they are and because this thing is so 
weird and it affects different people different ways. Just pray that God will protect all of us as we're there, all the students, uh, and most of all, that God will be glorified. Amen? Thank you all so much. Austin's going to close us with a word of prayer.